I should have reminded you that today is the Feast of the Sacred Heart, and we can't do very much about it now, but Father O'Leary will speak about the, the Sacred Heart at Mass, and I think we'll probably say the prayer of consecration to the Sacred Heart of Benediction. It was a great feast in the church, but today, with all the changes, we hardly notice it now that Corpus Christi has moved to a Sunday. I also should have last night paid tribute to Mr. <coughs> Freddie De Vere, who records all these talks. He's a fervent retreatant of this house, and he's done about five lots of tapes with me sitting here. I break his heart when I rattle my papers and things, but it soon mends. And um, now we come on to the second talk. This is the first sermon that Cardinal Newman ever preached when he was 24, and he didn't preach it in Oxford as he was to do later in so many years, uh, but he went to a friend, a vicar down in Sussex, and there he preached this sermon on holiness. The text that I would like you to think about, it's always good with him that he gives us a passage of scripture to turn over in our heads, and if you follow the different texts, you get to know the Bible extremely well. The text he chooses was from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14. It's very short and easy to take in. It says, aim at peace with all men and a holy life, for without that no one will see the Lord. There's a it's slightly variation in the other translations. Um, you'll find probably the American edition has a different version. But the great thing is that you're not going to see God unless you're holy. And Newman starts off quite simply for us, all of us. This is how I find the prayer went for me. He starts off saying that through, right through scripture, we are told again and again that to make men holy was the end of God's purpose. You find it in the covenant, you find it in the law of Moses, in the incarnation, and in the church, that without being holy, you will not see God. And Newman then asks a question, which I found very telling. Why is holiness a prerequisite? He would say, we have a faulty idea of holiness, but if we look into what holiness means, we'll see that it takes precedence of almost everything else. When he was a Protestant, he thought that justification was the great thing. Or again, I think as Catholics, we might think that having the faith is the most important thing. But ultimately, Newman goes on to point out that to be forgiven your sins or redeemed or justified can be done in a flash and is over. Holiness is the only thing that grows. We can get more holy. And of course, eventually, it's going to be holiness which will decide our eternity. So therefore, that's the point he first makes for us and we ought to pray very much as you consider what he goes on to say. He does suggest, and I would agree with him, that unfortunately the word holy um, has a wrong context 
a wrong meaning today, both for ourselves and for Protestants. Now, I think in the church, in my childhood, at any rate, and I don't know about you, holiness was a rather a wet sort of virtue. It meant sort of kind of being a do-gooder, and it meant some, uh, not smoking, that's a disaster, and not having beer and generally looking fed up. And it was a sort of a very sort of gloomy thing. I didn't, wouldn't want to be holy at any price. It was kind of modesty. You remember the sisters in the old days? I have two of my, two of my sisters, my only two sisters are nuns, and I remember when they entered their order, they had long sleeves that came right down to their fingernails. You only saw three little fingers sticking out. I used to think they were very underfed. I thought, poor things, look what they're going through. But now that the church has changed the nuns' habits and they look like merry widows, and I now find they've got an enormous arms. If the Supreme Court allowed them, they could go in for the draft. <laughs> but this was regarded as being very holy, so it looked to be all covered up. And it's an extraordinary thing with us that we've got, that Catholics, we have an idea of holiness, of, of looking, having your head on one side and drip on the end of your nose and, and say hallelujah every two seconds, or kumbaya, which is worse. <laughs> and, and one of the most odd things that I've pointed out to some of you before in another retreat, if you look at the stained glass windows, you never see a stained glass window to a fat saint. Saints have to be thin. They're all sort of skeletons all around the church. They're all hollow cheeks. and That's why John XXIII can't be canonized. He was too fat. <laughs> they couldn't get him into a stained glass window. <laughs> but we've got a most extraordinary idea that holiness means being slightly wet, that you can't have a full life or a joyful life. And I think that is, we ought to be terrified of that image because it's so untrue to the gospel and indeed to the lives of the saints. Of course, the Protestants, they changed the word holy and had godly, which is even more frightening. Nothing do I hate more than a godly man. It means you're going to say aa and nay nay all the time, nothing else. He'd never tell a joke. No, it's terrible to be godly. And when you see the Puritans when they came to Boston, now they were heroically devout people. I went to Boxford in, the, in East Anglia and saw where Governor Winthrop came from, who founded Boston, and his farm was called Groton. And one day after morning service, which was pretty dull, I bet, uh, he and his children and the whole damn lot left for Boston. He's left his mother's grave behind, his father's grave, you can see them there. Must have been an enormously brave and the holy man. His farm is still there, called Groton. And he came over to Massachusetts and was the first governor of Massachusetts. But look at the religion he established there when he got there, with witch hunting and uh, puritanism and no drink and no cards and no raffles and everything wrong. The Puritans are just as bad as we are on the other side of being wet. Well, Newman makes very clear that holiness has got nothing to do with this um, wetness. Oliver Cromwell, if you please, read the epistle to the Philippians in bed at night, so he wouldn't have needed a sleeping pill. It was an extraordinary sort of strict world on both sides, and so much of religion has that dullness. Now, Cardinal Newman takes holiness, and he makes a marvelous statement. He says, holiness is a frame of mind, to start with. 
by which we do things as God would have them done, and by which we live in the sight of the world to come. Now, I'm terribly impressed by that myself when I was praying, because who ever thought of holiness as a frame of mind? That is to say, a frame like you make a tapestry on, and you put one stitch and another stitch and another stitch and another stitch, and gradually the whole is filled up, and a design comes out, and a frame of mind, then, is a thing that's done very slowly. And a frame of mind need not be boring, and it need not be... Th you don't have to give up everything to ha have a frame of mind, no. But it's your attitude that in this world I do things as God wants them done, and I have in mind the world to come. And this is really the most moving image, and so much derives from it, even here on retreat that you've come on retreat here to get a frame of mind. It'll take you a whole lifetime to fill it up. But it's not a thing, a sort of impulse, a sudden charisma, a sudden baptism in the spirit, or falling over backwards, or being healed. No, it's, a, it's, it's my standard pattern of mind is to live in sight of the world to come. So that's the first point I got from Newman, and I would uh, recommend it to you. Then after that, Newman goes on to say that we've got a completely false notion because we think uh, that heaven is going to be something like this world. That we've got an idea that in this world we get what we want occasionally, but in heaven we'll get it all the time. We'll be up there having endless cigars and uh, Louis Armstrong tootling away. and uh, We've got the most absurd picture of heaven and we sort of think, well, if I don't get it here, I'll get it hereafter. In fact, a lot of priests even preach sermons saying that you, they, you think you're going to have an orgy for all eternity. Because that's because we've created for ourselves an image of a world purely material, and like this world, only there'll be no frustrations. We've left God out of it all. And the odd thing is that when you get to heaven, as Newman points out, we are going to have then, we're going to go into God's world. And he makes a very good picture for us that if you don't love God and live in the mind of the world to come in this life, what a terrible heaven you'll have. He describes people going to church. And I it comes to my mind those dreadful funerals you have when some distinguished person dies, a mayor or something, and everybody has to turn out to do respect to the dead. They have no interest in praying. They haven't said a prayer for 20 years, but they're there for George. And so they all come along, and they don't mind singing Onward Christian Soldiers or something, because that's the only one they know. But when the parson gets up and says, let us pray, two-thirds of the Rotarians, Shriners, don't know what the hell to do. They all look at each other and, and copy each other. That's why your battle hymn of the Republic so splendid. It's the only hymn I know that everybody could sing, even General de Gaulle. <laughs> At Churchill's funeral, everybody can sing, glory, glory, hallelujah. It lets you out of that awful pause when you're supposed to be praying to God. It's not sure humbug when you come to a funeral mass. No, you honor the dead, but you're not happy there. You're jolly glad when the chap gets down from the pulpit and you can get weaving again. And, and Newman's quite right about that, and he says just how terrible, if you 
die and you haven't got a frame of mind, but then you won't, can't enjoy heaven at all. You won't, you'll loathe it. You remember in the parable which he quotes, where our Lord said to the servant who had ten talents and the servant who had five talents, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful over little, I will put you over many, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That when we die, we'll enter into our Lord's joy. And if we don't like our Lord's joy, if it's not what we've got a frame of mind for, we'll just about have hell. If Newman quotes the Apocalypse, and it's a very fine passage, so I would read it, because you might take it out to show what the St. John in his vision in the Apocalypse had to say about heaven. And it's such a beautiful passage that you and I might well read it and turn it over for ourselves and for any of our dear ones who have died already. This is true of them. You'll find it in the book of Revelations, chapter 7, verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people all dressed in white? And where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you should know better than I. He then told me, these are the ones who have survived the great period of trial. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It was this that brought them before God's throne. Day and night they minister to him in his temple. He who sits on the throne will give them shelter. Never again shall they hunger or thirst, nor shall the sun or its heat beat down on them. For the Lamb on the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So when we get to heaven, God is going to provide the joy, and only those who've got God's frame of mind will be able to appreciate that joy. If we have the wrong kind of heaven, I don't know what we're to do. A, doc a doctor from New Haven, Connecticut, told me when I was talking to him about this before a t television program, he told me I ought to read Mark Twain. And in case any of you haven't, it's an absolute scream. Mark Twain wrote a wonderful story, Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. He was an old sailor from San Francisco, and he go went up to heaven, and he had a terrible time up there because he didn't, didn't speak the language. And he met another old sailor up there, and well, he had a nightmare up there to start with. First of all, he only knew one verse of one hymn, and he'd been singing it for 17 hours without a pause because he didn't know, that's all he knew. And, and his friends said, well, you better get another hymn because you've got to be here for eternity. You'll get rather fed up with that hymn all the time. Then he got, he wrote a very moving thing. Mark, he, he said to his friend, eternal rest sounded comforting from the pulpit. Well, you try it and see how heavy the time hangs on your hands. He had an awful time. He couldn't speak the language. He couldn't say a word. So he, he asked one of the angels, can you take me to the English section? <laughs> they took him there, but unfortunately the first chap he met was Chaucer, and he couldn't understand the word Chaucer said either. <laughs> and so then he said, well, where's the American section? They said, we haven't heard of America, where's that? That was awkward, and then he asked about the Republic, and they said, oh, there's no Republic here. 
He said, well, what about a senator? Have we, haven't I got a senator or something? It was really a screaming story. That he got into such a muddle, I think he saw Adam after a thousand years and asked for his signature. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's, it's well worth reading. It's the most amusing story, as only Mark Twain could do it, of somebody who got to heaven and hadn't got, had the language of San Francisco. And so he just couldn't do anything at all. So Cardinal Newman says to us in his sermon, that this is the, if you've got, you've got to have a frame of mind and you've got to be able to speak the language. This is the paragraph from the sermon where he describes the chap who had never be, tried to be holy while he was on earth. Now I will venture to say more than this. It is fearful, but it is right to say it, that if we wished to imagine a punishment for an unholy reprobate soul, we perhaps could not fancy a greater one than to summon it to heaven. Heaven would be held to an irreligious man. We know how unhappy we are apt to feel at present when alone in the midst of strangers or of men of different tastes and habits from ourselves. How miserable, for example, it would be to have to live in a foreign land among a people whose faces we never saw before and whose language we could not learn. And this is but a faint illustration of the loneliness of a man of earthly dispositions and tastes thrust into the society of saints and angels. How forlorn would he wander through the courts of heaven? He would find no one like himself. He would see in every direction the marks of God's holiness, and these would make him shudder. He would feel himself always in God's presence. He could no longer turn his thoughts away as he does now on earth. It's an extraordinary picture. I wonder how many of you have been in that position where you didn't know the language. I'm sure traveling abroad or maybe during the war or maybe out in the Pacific, you suddenly found yourself with people who you couldn't say a word to. All you could do was switch on a kind of charismatic smirk and pull, giggle at each other and couldn't say anything. One of the most moving accounts I read was St. John de Brebeuf up in Canada at Midland. When he went to, to the Indians there, this remarkable Frenchman, it took him two years to learn one word because the Indians spoke and didn't move their lips so he couldn't even imitate them. So for two years he couldn't say anything. And then he describes a journey of 30 days up the rivers of Canada in total silence. He couldn't speak. Then at last he began, and eventually he wrote a, he wrote a grammar and dictionary of the Indian the Huron language, and of course by the end of his life he had a parish of some 17,000 Indians. But it took him about three or four years even to begin to speak. And that's really the situation in which we're going to find ourselves if we get to heaven and can't speak the language. So I do suggest this idea of a frame of mind and very much the idea of not knowing the language. This is what we've got to learn while we are here. Now, I repeat what Newman says, we've got to do things in the way God wants them done. That's one very resolution in a retreat. And the second thing we've got to do um, is to uh, We've got to um, live always with a view to the life of the world to come. 
you and I know that at any given second, we might be there. Death's a thing that can happen at any minute to anyone. And we all know that our heart has only got a bit of gristle in the middle and it pumps up and down. And that at any moment you can have a coronary, at any moment you can be killed by a bus, or today mugged. That any one of us at any second might find ourselves in the next world. Then we'll face it. And the people who are going to be happy are those who, while they were on earth, longed for God, did things the way he wanted, and had in mind the world to come. Now, I found that a most refreshing outlook, and of course it is extraordinary because Newman then, he took the phrase that he was taught as a little boy, holiness rather than peace. He chose holiness because he simply knocked the bottom out of most of my early faith. He said of Catholics, uh, that, and of Church of England people too, that so many Christians, they're always worrying about being in a state of grace. And therefore, even on a retreat, we begin to worry about our sins, and we feel that somehow, if I could only get into the state of grace, I'm safe. And Newman, right from the start as a preacher to the undergraduates, kept on saying that to be in the state of grace is only just to be starting. Our Lord said, so let your light shine upon men that they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are meant to be reflecting God in the world. And the more I do that, the more holy I am. The more people seeing me, a person like Mother Teresa, seeing me realizes about the next world, that there's another world to come. As soon as you see that, then that person certainly is doing what he was made for. You see, we always think that to be in a state of grace is the object of religion, and it certainly is to get your sins forgiven. But no, the real purpose for me and for you is to reflect God while we're on earth. And therefore, holiness can grow in us every year, every day of our lives. Not by saying a a nay, nay, uh, but by so doing things that people seeing me realize I've got a secret and that there is a language that they've got to learn. And that's why I found with Newman this was a most remarkable achievement. Newman always says, he used to say about the mirror in the bathroom that it's not broken, but if it's covered with fluff or lint, it reflects nothing. And he, he loved the comparison in many of his sermons of the sunshine coming into your room. It came into mine about two days ago. I did I had a nightmare. A great beam of light came, and what looked so clean was filthy. You saw dust everywhere. I couldn't believe it. My electric razor, I thought, never bothered about it until a beam of light falls on it, and you suddenly see, my Lord, the dust, the dirt. You must have had that many times at home in the autumn or in the spring when the sun is at a certain level and suddenly you see an extraordinary picture. And so it was that that Newman stressed to us that I've, I get rid of my little faults in confession and all that. Why? So that my reflection will be better. Not that any I, things I've done are very serious, not that I'm very worried about them, we're all sinners, but because there's a more to life than just being in a state of grace. To be holy is certainly you start by being in a state of grace, but then there's a further thing comes, and that is that you begin to, something shines through you. 
And so then Newman makes a very good point at the end, uh, which he would experience because he was saved at the age of 15 and realized how wrong that was when he became a clergyman of the Church of England. He always remembered the joy of knowing he was saved, and it never, he never was ashamed of it, these two luminously self-evident beings, God and myself, but he did realize that they, they come more and more together. And that therefore, this is holiness, that God gets so near to me. And then he found that a lot of those feelings that he had, and which some of us are afflicted with, they're not holiness. They're an aid to holiness. As he was, would say, it's like an airplane taking off. You've got to have a sort of boost at the beginning, like your beautiful shuttle. When the rockets wouldn't fire properly, uh, then it, was in a, it wasn't in a state of grace. And the, and the engineer who designed the whole thing, he wasn't too worried. He knew sooner or later it would work. The two chaps waiting for it to start were in a bit of a flap, I imagine. They must have said several rosaries while they, would, while they found out where they were going to go. But strange to say, he wasn't worried. One day the rockets would go, and then he would begin his, his genius would show. When, when that rocket shuttle came down without an engine through the clouds, it really was one of the most thrilling things I've seen in my life now. This is like our Lord with us. He's not all that worried about our past sins if he forgives them, but he wants to get them out of the way so that then now I will begin to reflect him. And so, I, as, he, as we know, the incarnation was designed so that we one day, linked to our Lord, would be divine. And that's why Newman inspires me so much, because otherwise you stop at being in a state of grace. And you've really, in a way, not even begun to think that because our Lord became a man, that I am going to be raised up and all of us are going to be carried up. And it's, this is in all the old fathers, it's in the scriptures, that we never even thought about it. In order to show us that it doesn't happen very fast, Newman gives us two examples from the scriptures. He says, first of all, the foolish virgins. When they got to the wedding feast, they could not, in a hurry, produce oil. They could be sorry for being late. They could bang on the door and ask to be admitted. Nobody there at the wedding feast, not even the bride and bridegroom, could loan them oil. There was no shortcut. They had to go back and get oil and then to be late for the wedding, not to go to it. And in the wedding, there was the man who hadn't got a wedding dress on. He hadn't got his right clothes on. Nothing could change him. No flash, no miracle could suddenly produce in him what he needed to have. And that's why it's interesting that Newman, who was himself aware that he was saved when he was a little boy, came more and more to realize that this was a, a great blessing and advantage like the baptism of the Spirit is, but it's not the answer. The real answer is a frame of mind. So when we say one step enough for me, as he said in his lovely hymn, this is what I've got to realize. I always feel so thrilled when I see you arriving for a retreat because when you arrive at a retreat, you've taken one more step. You may not have wanted to come. It may have been an awful bore. Your poor wife must be furious and all that. But every time a person comes on retreat, you're taking and putting in another stitch into the frame of mind. And so gradually, the design of our lives are made up of this. 
I think St. Ignatius was a genius. That's exactly what he did with a 30-day retreat. It didn't make you holy in a minute, but it gave you a frame on which all your actions could be pinned. And I'm hoping very much that you'll find the same here, that um, um, uh, the retreat we make here, conference after conference, silence after silence, little by little you'll find uh, that you gradually get a frame of mind. I don't know what you feel now that I've got to 72. I find how I look back over my first retreats and all my life and notice how a thing builds up in you. So it isn't, you're not ever to be converted in a hurry. And I think when he preached his sermon to these people, he gave us a marvelous image. So therefore, you might like to go back over the text that he gave us, where he said, aim at peace with all men and at a holy life, for without that, no one will see the Lord. Then you want to go back and consider how we have a funny idea of heaven that we're going to have our capacity of joy that we didn't have here, but is all going to be arranged by ourselves. Whereas in fact, when we go to the next world, we're going into God's territory and we'll enter into the joy of your Lord. If our Lord's joy in heaven is not enjoyable to us, then we're going to have a bad time. Then we think of that verse in Apocalypse where those men who have got to heaven, they are ministering to our Lord and he's consoling them and giving them all that they need uh, for eternity. Then you can think of a man who isn't holy going to church, just how bored he is in church. And he doesn't know what to do when the parson says, let us pray. He's never prayed. Or you can think of poor Mark Twain's lovely man who ha only had this one verse to sing for eternity. His heaven was absolute scream. I never read such a funny thing. I wanted Father Stokel to have it read at meals and you'd all bubble in your soup. It's so funny to find this poor chap can't find anything that he's known. And he's, uh, all he can do is sing up per permanently, which isn't really what a boatman from San Francisco would want to do. And then if, finally, when you don't speak the language, you realize you're doomed, uh, then the next thing after la finally is that there's no, you can't hurry about being holy. You can only take one step. That just like a frame of mind making a tapestry, I've got to take a step at a time, and I take a step first when I do things as God would want them to be done, and that is uh, tremendously important, and a retreat is doing that. And the second thing we've got to do is we can't suddenly produce a miracle oil or a wedding garment. All the things in the gospel where you have lovely feelings and are suddenly come alive and feel so holy, they're all aids to get the rockets to fire. But then when the rocket is eventually fired, then the glory of the thing happens when the shuttle goes sailing away. Uh, then it is that the genius of the man who constructed it is seen and the satisfaction is seen. And I would have said that this is really Newman's greatest contribution is that holiness increases in our lives where forgiveness and things don't. They're all important, but they're only the first steps. Once I am in a state of grace, then God can shine through me. And if I go to confession and get rid of all my little faults or examine my conscience just to see um, how they're going and, and trying my best, 
then all of a sudden I may not see it, but other people will see uh, that I've got a message. We had a love, awfully nice priest in Glasgow, the rector there of our college, and he was a very bossy little man and always busy and you never could talk to him. And eventually he moved to Manchester. And two or three Scotsmen went down to see him in Manchester and they, came, they were going to a football game. And when they went to Manchester, they called on him and he said, it's Saturday, you know, I'm busy, I've got confessions. Go to your football game, don't disturb me. So they all streamed out into the street and then one of them said to the other, isn't it marvellous, he's just the same. <laughs>